Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Oh, you guys, I can't believe I have to say this, but we have now entered the third month of Russia's unprovoked war on Ukraine. But the situation actually took a critical turn this week as the Russians, who have been clearly outmaneuvered by the Ukrainians, were forced to temporarily retreat to Belarus to overhaul their war plans. And when they did temporarily leave, a shocking discovery now has the international community absolutely outraged. Video and images from the city of Bucha reveal a civilian massacre carried out by Russian soldiers. The carnage and execution-style killings of men, women, and children, some as young as 12, could actually be just the beginning. The Russians are planning on returning to try to take all of Ukraine. There is this reported feeling of panic right now on the ground as Ukrainian officials warn residents in the eastern part of the nation that the window to evacuate is fast closing. So that's where my guest today comes in. Since right before the start of the war in late February, that's when it kicked off, right? Former Green Beret Dale Buckner, he's a decorated war veteran, has worked round the clock to successfully extract thousands of Ukrainians and foreigners from the war-torn country. How has he done that without getting his team or the evacuees harmed? And are we now entering perhaps the most dangerous point of this bloody war? Well, we are really appreciative that Dale has agreed to share his story. Dale is the CEO of Global Guardian, which is his security agency. Great to have you. Thank you so much for joining us on Everyone Talks to Liz, Dale. Liz, thank you. We really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Of course. Uh, You know, Dale, just to get people up to speed. You predicted Russia's invasion of Ukraine well before it happened and began, what, to send warnings to your clients? Let's begin with what you started to see, how you analyzed the situation, and what you said in your warnings. Yes, ma'am. So we did. uh, About 39 days prior to the invasion, we started to look at that part of the world, and specifically with Russia, um, my COO and a few of my other senior executives here at the at the, the firm um, are ex-CIA. Uh, my COO had done two tours in Moscow, and we had also were connected with a series of other ex-CIA agents that had served in that part of the world. And we started to talk about probabilities. On day 31 prior to the invasion, we sent out a 57 slide PowerPoint slideshow to our largest clients that we knew had infrastructure and people and operations in the region. And we basically said the following, there is a 65% chance that Russia will strike Ukraine in some form or fashion Hmm. that could be ground, that could be air, that could be from the sea. Uh, We stated there is a 25% chance that Russia will attempt to invade the country uh, at, at, at scale and try and take the whole country. And there is a 10% chance that we'll find a, a diplomatic off-ramp 
prior to have some kind of physical or kinetic war, if you will, or strike. And that's how it started. And then we led up from day 31, we sent out over a hundred alerts to our client base, basic to, to put it in very layman's terms, begging them to take this serious and mm. understand that it felt almost imminent. And then of course it started. So I need to know, I'm sure some took you seriously, but the ones who yeah. didn't, so I could yes. just hear some of these clients saying, bruh, you, you want the business. I get it. But we don't see yeah. anything really happening. I mean, sure, satellite photos, because we yeah. on Fox Business were showing the satellite photos of troops amassing on the border. Yeah. And yeah. Putin's on the television saying, oh, I'm not going to do anything. And we even had the head of Russia's second largest bank, Andrei Kostin. He's known as Putin's banker. Come on the show and make a bet with me that Russia would never never yeah. invade Ukraine. He said this, yeah. what, a couple of weeks before it happened. Uh, yeah. So tell me about the people who kind of push back on your warnings. Yeah. So our core client base is the Fortune 1000. These are brands you would recognize. They're household names in addition to families. And what I would tell you is I'd say 30% took us seriously and started to collect key information, phone numbers, emails, addresses, how many people are in the family, do they have satellite devices, are they prepared, so on and so forth. And then frankly, about the other 70%, to your point, dismissed us. And what I would tell you is, this is absolutely the standard response, okay. whether it's the hurricanes heading towards the Caribbean in the 2017, where there's two back-to-back -back hurricanes that hit Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, or it's the Turkey coup, the Paris attacks, the Myanmar attacks, uh, so on and so forth. In all of these scenarios, we kind of live this day to day where I think corporate America, and this is what's really hard to understand, is we've now been as a nation in the longest conflict in the history of our nation. And you have CEOs in the Fortune 500, Fortune 100 that openly dismiss this. Um, and it's hard to understand that mentality. Mm. And then, of course, understanding Russia and the mentality of Russia is what really drove us to say this is serious. Putin's, you know, getting older. He's, you know, his legacy, if you will, is getting to the end. And frankly, Ukraine, at the end of the day, is the last it's it's a red line for him. It's the last country that he could influence before they might potentially become a NATO country. So mm. for all those reasons, that's why we predicted what we predicted. And now we're in the position we're in. Let's fast forward to the start of the war. Clarify to our listeners when you got that first call. Oh, my God, we should have listened to you, Dale. Now we're yeah. stuck. Help us get out of Ukraine fast. Yeah. So we did get those calls, of course, in the first 24 to 48 hours. We also sent, you know, emails and started calling our large clients where we knew they had infrastructure and people. And of course, in some cases, some of our biggest firms in the Fortune 500 took six to eight days to get back to us oh. with lists and people and status. And what I tell everyone is, and this is a very militaristic statement, it might not be intuitive, but at the beginning of every one of these crises, the statement is speed is your security, meaning mm -hmm. The faster you move before, you know, if you think about it, the Russians were nowhere near Kiev. They were barely uh, outside of Crimea in the south. They're barely outside moving towards the west out of Donbass in the east. So that speed, the ability to move in the first call at five to six days is when it's the safest movement. You have the most freedom of maneuver. 
bridges aren't being blown out. There aren't checkpoints yet. That speed is your security. You have freedom maneuver. You can really get a lot done quickly. By about day seven or eight, it starts to slow down because now you have checkpoints, infrastructures being bombed. They're firing missiles off the sea, and this starts to complicate things. So ultimately, we did have seven clients within the first 24 hours call and say go. Mm -hmm. And the ones, again, that had prepared and given us the documentation, we immediately started reaching out, organizing, and making decisions based on the threat. Do we go right to their address and pick them up, or are we going to consolidate several hundred people by city typically in churches and parks and things like that. So it did start very quickly. Okay, you you just referenced, you know, our military way of thinking. Okay, I want to let our listeners know your background. You're a decorated yes, combat commander, multiple tours and classified operations in Iraq, Afghanistan, Colombia, Haiti, Cuba. You served in the U.S. Army Infantry for nine years, military intelligence. I mean, you are the real deal. Special Forces Green Beret. I'm listening to you. Okay, so let's just get to that point where the window did start to constrict beyond the six days. Yeah. yeah. What has so been it, one of your most dangerous extractions so far yeah. in Ukraine? And we've we've published this, and I could send you a sanitized version of what we call a mission brief. Mm -hmm. So um, we've sent this out pretty pretty widely to our client base, especially those that still had not moved quickly. We had um, three corporate clients that were north of Kiev. So if you remember, the Russians came from Belarus north of the capital Correct. and moved south. So bottom line is we had clients that were stuck behind Russian lines and they were very senior. They were very important to the firm. They were what we would call a high value target, if you will, mm. to us. So we had made the decision that this was one of the scenarios where we were willing to take extreme risk. So we went in with uh, an armored vehicle, two soft vehicles. We did reconnaissance just outside the city for almost two days. We noted we started to see the pattern of the Russian strikes of artillery and missile strikes, meaning we could see three, four hours of just pounding and then a lull, three, four hours of pounding and then uh, a lull. Okay. So what we determined was, okay, once it gets to daylight, when we get to that next lull, that's when we're going to go in. So we had, had executed what you call an offset, meaning you're offset right outside the city by three or four miles. So we're not getting bombed. We're watching, listening and watching, you know, traffic going in and out. And then of course the bombing. At that point, we did go in, successfully get to the executives. We did a quick health and welfare check with our doctors. We put them in the armored vehicle. Then we put a reconnaissance vehicle in front to deal with anything that we might run into. And then a, a vehicle in the back of them. Mm. And we successfully got them out. That entire mission set from planning to the reconnaissance to the execution was almost four days and we ended up exfilling them to the southwest of the city and then took them to the Polish border. And it was, you know, two days of, of just being outside the, the bombing zone, if you will. Everyone's armed, everybody in your team. How many people are we talking about who work for you on the ground right now in Ukraine? Yeah, we have just about 175 agents and drivers 
these are sprint, you know, average sprinter van drivers, average bus drivers, but they're led, if okay. you will, mm-hmm. by ex special forces and ex law enforcement agents. Um, and that's two teams in in the Ukraine, and then we have teams in Poland, Romania, Hungary, uh, and Slovakia. Anybody hurt so far? No. So we're very proud to say this, and this goes into the kind of the risk reward and and, and something to demonstrate. I think when most people hear what I just described, they think that's very militaristic. It's very scary. It's a combat zone. That's not something a corporate headquarters would be interested in. The reality is we've had not a single injury of a single agent, not a single vehicle has been struck, uh, not a single client has ever been detained, kidnapped, assaulted, or injured. And we've done this now for over 8,000 evacuees. And my point is really this. Everything in these operations is about risk reward and timing. You do have to be patient. You do have to watch the intelligence. You do have to monitor the conditions on the ground. No, no, no doubt about it. That being said, the concept of an exfiltration is not overly complicated. It really isn't. It's a matter of good preparation, good communication, and then following the plan and being willing to, to un, you know, to change on a dime based on the conditions on the ground. And I think those principles are what make this work in that we've operated in arguably one of the toughest environments in the last 20 years. Wow. And we've done it with great success because we follow those principles. And I think the lesson learned for corporate America is this. There are two to four disruptive events a year now that you can almost guarantee whether they're natural disaster, whether it's terrorism, whether it's war or conflict, this is now the world we live in. Mm. And if you kind of want to sit in your cubicle and bury your head and just sit and and live in the suburbs and think that that stuff's never going to creep up on your company, I just think it's the wrong mentality, if you will. I have a racing heart right now just hearing about this. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clayman. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clayman right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clayman. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now I need you to go way back. Were you, as a child, thinking about doing this kind of thing? Who were you as a little kid? Yeah. So I grew up in upstate New York, primarily Uh uh, Rochester, New York. I did not have a military family. I did play three to four sports a year. I I have a family of four brothers, uh, all boys. (laughs) Okay, say no more. Yeah. And I was the youngest. So I, you know, of course, took the beatings, but (laughs) it did make me um, aggressive in that in playing sports and being captain on all my sports teams and things like that. I do think prepared me. That being said, 
I went to college like any other kid. I really didn't know what, you know, what I wanted my major to be. I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up kind of thing. And I think I was introduced to ROTC in college. Again, I didn't even know what that was. I, I had not had a, you know, a family relative that had served or any kind of history there. Um, a basketball coach introduced me to it. I was lucky enough to go to both this, the schools called air assault school and airborne school where you learn how to jump out of planes and parachute. And I, I kind of fell in love with it. I fell in love with the teamwork aspect because no one is bigger than the team. And I had kind of grown up with that mentality already. And ultimately I had done two um, corporate uh, summer internships that I wasn't very impressed to be frank. And these were big companies. One was an airline, one was a consultancy firm, and I did not enjoy it very much. I was kind of bored. Okay. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm coming up on 22 years old. I'm going to graduate. I can either go in the reserves or I can go on active duty. I chose to go on active duty and I had initially passed the test to become a helicopter pilot. But I thought if I'm only going to do this for three years, I might as well be in it. And I volunteered to be in the infantry, uh, you know, a soldier. And ultimately, I I kind of I enjoyed it. I was going to get out and go get an MBA or get a real job, quote unquote. And ultimately, a friend of mine had gone into special forces. He had gone into Delta Force and he said, hey, I really think you should check this out before you leave. And I ended up going to special force selection. Uh, and there's a lot of luck there, admittedly. Sure. A lot of really good people get hurt, injured. There's just a lot of things that can happen to you. And ultimately, I, I was lucky enough to get through that. And then I, I, again, got lucky again, went right into a special forces scuba team. And I fell in love with that. <laughs> and my life just kind of 20 years of my life just kind of went by with a blink of an eye. And I, you know, I always tell everyone the beauty of the military is what you make of it. And there's so much opportunity if you have the right attitude and you you have the right perspective. There's so many lessons learned that I can't replicate in corporate America that I will always be thankful for. Well, I always say hire veterans. They are motivated. They don't have to be told twice to do something correctly. It's just such an obvious thing because and, and just hearing from you, it makes me so proud of our men and women in service. But beyond that. It's it's one thing, of course, to have this very decorated military career. It's another to then get out and start a successful business. Yeah. What is the key to that? How did you get uh, the idea and then to start it up? I mean, this is 2012, yeah. correct? It is, Liz. So I, I officially retired in June of 2012. Just prior to that, uh, to be very direct, I did not want to be a contractor I didn't want to go to the CIA. I didn't want to work at Lockheed Martin or Boeing and use my clearance, mm -hmm. all those kind of traditional paths. So I had started a PhD when I was at Tufts in Boston, and my intent was to go finish it using the GI Bill. I did not have family. I didn't have kids at the time. Um, and I thought, I'm just going to go back and use, use the GI Bill and finish up my education and then figure it out. That being said, I was always interested in business. I wanted to do something where I was completely stretched every day to be almost uncomfortable and be in an environment that I didn't understand or didn't have experience with, but I, I wanted to force myself to go down that path. So I was looking for something like that. And my PhD was gonna be in finance, which of course I, I had no real world experience in at all. <laughs> that being said, I bumped into a serial entrepreneur who's now my partner and chairman. Um, and I was lucky to meet him. He's very convincing. 
And he at the time had been running six oil and gas service firms amongst other firms. And he said, look, insurance does not perform well in real time. I've had people kidnapped, injured, sick, killed, all of it in these really high risk nations where oil and gas is quite prominent around the world. And he said, I think there's an opportunity. Can you think about this? So I came back to Washington, D.C. I spent two weeks building a business plan, relatively rudimentary. And then most importantly, I went to three Fortune 100 companies through connections on my now board, met with the chief security officer and said, tell me what works. More importantly, tell me what doesn't. And what I learned was insurance is loaded with restrictions. It doesn't care for terrorism. It doesn't cover natural disaster. It doesn't cover conflict in war zones and so on and so forth. So that was an obvious opportunity. And two, a majority of these corporate, what they call duty of care uh, or, or um, medical evac platforms are very limited in scope. So what I learned was most of these corporate headquarters have anywhere between seven to 15 vendors. They have a vendor for black car, a vendor for private aviation, a vendor for security, a vendor for Intel, a vendor for camera surveillance, so on and so forth. What we thought the market opportunity was be comprehensive, do it all so it's coordinated. Don't deploy expats after the fact because you might not be able to get in, mm-hmm. meaning have teams in the ground that speak the language, understand the culture, and can maneuver in that space in a way that you know expats from the US or UK cannot. It'll speed everything up, frankly. Um, and lastly, um, ensure that we would go into these kinds of crises where everyone else contractually was afraid to do it. Now that sounds high risk, but ultimately it's proven. We've never even filed a single insurance claim in 11 years. I've never failed a medical medical evac mission. I've never failed a, a single security mission in the history of the company. So I I got what I wanted. I, I've been stretched. Finding, you know, I have these very important and powerful people on my board that have lived finance their entire life, and I you know I had to learn that language quickly. Mm-hmm. And now this has scaled very quickly and it's become very valuable, you know, to the to the world in many ways. Oh, absolutely. Uh, before we go, I really need your military mind, your global guardian mind to tell us what's ahead. Uh, we know that the Russians have retreated for the time being. And basically what they're doing is they're just restocking. And yeah. I, A, <laughs> can the Ukrainians win this thing? And B... Yeah. Is it soon going to be impossible to get into or out of Mariupol, or are we there already at this point? Depending on your definition of winning, I think that the Ukrainians in many ways have already won. I think the Russians have been embarrassed. I think the sanctions are going to take hold over time and really put real pressure on them economically over time. And that's not instant. And I think that Ultimately, we will end up with a quote unquote new Ukraine. We're going to redraw lines. The Russians will have that land bridge, but it does not mean that this is over. I think there's this low level insurgency that goes on potentially for years. I think we'll recognize new Ukraine. I think we will support them, the West, NATO, the US. Um, And this only ends poorly for Russia, economically, militarily. Uh, diplomatically, I just think they take loss after okay. loss after loss. Mariupol, can you get in there yet? Yeah. I, to your point, you, you've already made a really key point. There are 
approximately, no one knows the exact number, there are approximately 130,000 citizens stuck in Mariupol. Mm. Um, that being said, the there were seven humanitarian corridors that were supposed to be open uh, as late as last week. And this past Saturday, a little over 3,300 people got out of Mariupol. Okay. The problem is this. Um, the Russians have announced they're going to open these corridors. The reality is the Russian soldiers have not allowed, you know, 50, 40, 50, 60 buses at a time to go into the city and evacuate people at scale. So there's been small pockets of success. That being said, my sense is the Russians need that city so badly that their patience will wane here. They will stop even the, you know, they'll stop extending this quote unquote humanitarian corridor and they're just going to get on with it and take the city and occupy it. And the opportunity to your point to get out is shrinking every single day. We might already be there uh, right now where there is going to be no humanitarian corridor. And those 130,000 people are either stuck or they're being taken to the Donbass where it's now the equivalent of Russia. And I think that's where we sit today. You know, I was thinking, oh, let's end on a happy note of something. No, there is no happy note right now. We are going to end it here, but we want you back. Dale, thank you. Thank you for all you're doing. You know, the closest I've ever come to this is seeing that movie Extraction starring Chris Hemsworth. I mean, Mm -hmm. you are the real deal and your team so brave. Thank you for all you're doing. Thank you, Liz. We really enjoyed it. Dale Buckner, CEO and president of Global Guardian. I really have nothing more to say except uh, these are the people who are the true heroes there. The doctors, the security guys, the people who are diving in as everybody's trying to leave just to help even a few souls out at a time. Of course, we've been covering all of this on Fox Business, uh, certainly during the 3 p.m. Eastern show, Claim and Countdown. I hope you'll join me Monday through Friday. Thanks so much, and I'll, I'll see you guys next time. The Will Kane Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Kane as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.